The Senate Armed Services Committee has issued its version of a defense policy bill for 2022. To nearly everyone's surprise, it would add $35 billion to what the Biden administration has proposed. For more about this and what else is in there, we turn to a senior advisor in the National Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, Mark Kantzian. Mr. Kantzian, good to have you back. Well, thanks for having me on the show. Fair to say you were surprised by that $35 billion proposed plus-up over what the administration had proposed? I was. I suspected that the Senate might come in higher. The Senate tends to be more deficit hawkish than the House. It also doesn't have the progressive caucus that the House has to contend with. But that was a big number. Now, it may just be the beginning of a negotiation so that with the House coming in at the president's level, the Senate coming in at a much higher level, you know, they'll compromise somewhere in the middle. But that still increases the amount of money available to DOD quite substantially. Because you said the Senate tends to be more deficit hawkish, are they perhaps more national defense hawkish also? Defense hawkish, yes. Okay, and so you'd almost think Scoop Jackson is still around by this plus-up. Well, really. And there are a number of defense hawks in the Senate. The Senate also tends to be more centrist, so you tend to see more concern about national security. Well, that's the politics of it. In that $35 billion, what is it that would be purchased with the plus-up, should it come to pass? They've described a large number of things that they would plus-up. It's mostly procurement, although there are elements of everything else, you know, O&M operations and maintenance, uh, some benefits, some R&D. But lots of procurement programs were cut. The total amount of procurement was cut in the president's budget proposal. So the Senate is essentially putting those elements back in and lots of little pieces, you know, adding, you know, a few more aircraft here, a few more aircraft there. One of the big things that people have noted is that it puts a second destroyer back in the budget. The Navy had cut the destroyer. Typically, it has funded two destroyers a year. It had proposed cutting back to one. The Senate came back, put that second one in, and the House is putting that second destroyer in, too. And, in fact, the House expressed some annoyance that this looked like a budget ploy by the Navy to get more money. But the biggest thing also is that the Senate funded essentially the service unfunded requirements list. You know, every year, the services send in a list of what they call their unfunded requirements, that is, things that they would like to get into the budget that they were not able to get in, and the Senate took those as a basis and essentially funded those. And, of course, there's no overseas contingency operations funds this year proposed, and that leaves them less places to hide, I guess, too, correct? Well, the interesting thing is that they folded the war funding, the overseas contingency operations funding, directly into the budget, really without any cuts. You know, so DOD came through this process unscathed, which was a little unexpected also, but good for the department. We're speaking with Mark Kantzian. He's senior advisor in the National Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And beyond the plus-up, what were some of the other noteworthy provisions that you found, again, in the Senate NDAA draft as it stands now? There were quite a number of interesting items that popped up. You know, one is about retirement of older systems. Uh, the department has talked about getting rid of legacy systems, the Senate, uh, and the House also have prohibited the Air Force from making many of the retirements that they had proposed, but they're allowing the Navy to go ahead with early retirements of some of its cruisers and LCS destroyers. So that was interesting. They sort of, the department got half of what they wanted there. 
couple of other interesting things. Uh, they create a commission on the national defense strategy. Now, Congress has created such a commission with every administration basically to provide an outside independent assessment of national security and its needs. Typically, those commissions have come in pretty hawkish, suggesting additional funds. And the listeners may be aware, back during the early Trump years, the department, the secretary and the chairman said that DOD needed 3 to 5% real growth every year to maintain its forces and modernize. Of course, the budget doesn't provide for that. The Senate seems to be moving in that direction. And I think the commission will probably come out there, although, of course, it hasn't even been named yet. There's another commission on budget reform, which is interesting for insiders, probably not generally interesting. A um, couple of other things regarding women. You know, One thing is that there's been uh, proposals to take sexual assault crimes away from commanders and put them in a special prosecutor. The concern had been that commanders were not being aggressive enough, that Senate bill would do that. And the department has accepted that. I mean, the commanders are not really comfortable with it, but they have accepted that. Another interesting thing that's got a lot of attention is the registration of women for the draft. The current draft law requires that only men register. In fact, the Supreme Court upheld that sort of as a surprise, at least to me. The Senate would require uh, women to register. And, you know, that certainly seems to make a lot of sense now that all jobs are open to women. There doesn't seem to be any good rationale for excluding women. One other thing that's sort of interesting is that they continue support to the Afghan government. There have been a lot of concern that, you know, when U.S. pulled out its forces, that we would also end support to the Afghan government and really wash our hands of the whole thing, as we did in Vietnam in the 1970s. But the Senate proposes to continue that support. So lots of policy, lots of budgetary surprises in there. What about the House version? We're starting to see the outline of what they would like to do. We are. The biggest difference is that they are marking to the president's budget level. So all of these additions that you see on the Senate side, you know, these budget additions, procurement additions, uh, you don't see on the House side for the most part. I mean, the House does a little moving around. They do add that second destroyer, as I mentioned. They are supporting more protections for women uh, who are victims of sexual assault. They're supporting a number of personnel benefits, enhancements. There's one called basic needs allowance, which would basically give additional money to junior enlisted who have large families. They're supporting you know, this war funding change, which I think has broad bipartisan support. So you're seeing some of the same things, but this huge difference on the amount of money. And a final question with respect to the whole ball of wax, the pivot to China or the pivot to Asia that was first delineated during the Obama administration, and I think at least verbally picked up again now by the Biden administration. Does the budget reflect that priority of great powers competition with China? To the extent that it supports what the Biden administration has proposed, it does. I think it also maintains a broader set of capabilities than many strategists would argue for, and the higher budget level that the Senate is proposing uh, allows that. That is, some strategists would say radically cut the forces, put that money into advanced weaponry and the kind of capabilities that would be useful against China. Other people, and I have to say myself included, say the United States needs to maintain a portfolio of capabilities because our next conflict will probably not be against China. It'll probably be someplace that we don't even imagine today, and we need to maintain that spectrum of capabilities. And you're seeing that in the Senate version, although the extra money helps do both. 
And with respect to end strength in terms of numbers of troops, nothing radical one way or the other then. No, they came in at essentially the same level as the Biden administration had proposed. So what this means is that they are not increasing the size of the forces. The Senate is putting the money into primarily procurement, but also some of these other elements, you know, increased benefits, a little increase in R&D, which the Biden administration had already increased. All right. Uh, well, anything else we need to cover here? They do uh, create an Arctic deterrence initiative, which is sort of interesting. There's been a lot of interest in the Arctic. The OD has created an Arctic strategy in response to what the Russians are doing up there and what the Chinese might potentially do. There's already a European deterrence initiative and an Indo-Pacific deterrence initiative. They've added an Arctic deterrence initiative uh, to focus attention on that. And I guess they'll get some more icebreakers. Is any of those in the budget? Um, The proposal is to build six, three heavy three medium. And those are being built and this Arctic deterrence initiative would help do that. Now, the icebreakers are in the Coast Guard budget. You know, the Navy provides some technical support, but it's in the Coast Guard budget. And that program is continuing along. So yes, I would see that as continuing and us adding icebreakers, but also a variety of capabilities that would be used in the far north, beefing up facilities and capabilities in Alaska, for example. And you know, some of our um, early warning sure. systems up in the far north. And who knows, with what's happening on the climate, maybe they'd need a slush breaker instead of an icebreaker. <laughs> well, of course, you know, there's more open water up in the north, and that's creating uh, increased activity, both civilian and military. You know, one of the Coast Guard's nightmares is that a civilian cruise liner gets in trouble up in the far north, and we just don't have the capability to go and help it. Yeah. All right. We'll think twice about booking one of those. Mark Kantzian is Senior Advisor in the National Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Thanks so much. Glad to join you. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970 and then as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything, and it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, And then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life and um, 
it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style and how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it. Um, From Sea to the C-Suite, fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention and it was, it was, you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions. Uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and... Um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. 
What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. T- can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, And I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And and, uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, During my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, w- WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zell. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.